0: Welcome back, you're listening to In-Situ Science, where we get to hear what science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode, I'm joined by a lecturer, paleontologist, and evolutionary biologist, Nicholas Campione. Nick, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's nice, uh, nice to be here. Thanks, James. How are you enjoying Australia so far? It's been
1: uh, an experience, <laughs> at least. <laughs> Go on, what does that mean? (laughs) Trying to get used to the spiders. Really? (laughs) There's some big spiders in this country.
0: (laughs) But that's okay. So I'm obviously someone that works with spiders and insects and stuff and assume (laughs) that they're not really a big deal. And I know that that's how Australia is portrayed overseas. Is it really that
1: noticeable coming here? No, it's it's quite all right. it, It is interesting to know that you're living with Animals that can potentially kill you, but they don't seem to be a problem. But
0: you come from a place with, like, bears and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> bears are not a problem. No, <laughs> <laughs> well, I could say the same about spiders. <laughs> I, that's ex- I think that's the conclusion I'm coming
1: to. All right,
0: good. <laughs> and how long have you been here Knights?
1: Ooh, coming up to two months.
0: All right, so, so
1: to me that doesn't sound like... No, but it's been surprisingly, I think for a Canadian, Australia is not that different. (laughs) And so, uh, at least in in terms of how the country's run. And so I feel like it's been pretty easy to acclimatize to to Australia.
0: And so you've come over here to the University of New England to start a new position.
1: Lecturer in paleontology.
0: Okay. And you sort of hit the ground running and have
1: been busy working hard. Pretty much. Teaching a few different courses. And Mm -hmm. uh, so my specialty is invertebrate paleontology. And UNE now has two full-time vertebrate paleontologists with uh, more postdocs to come. And
0: that's, my understanding is, that's a lot of vertebrate paleontologists. It is.
1: You can almost say that UNE is like a center for paleontology (laughs) in general. In Australia-wise or global-wise? I I think even globally. It's a pretty big group. Normally... Uh, departments only hire a few, a handful of paleontologists. There's, of course, have some notable examples of big departments mm. worldwide. But UNE is definitely up there. And and we've got
0: people that do the cool stuff, the big, flashy, showy stuff, right? We do dinosaur stuff. We
1: do do dinosaurs. I'm one of the ones that do <laughs> dinosaurs.
0: <laughs> so is, that, is there a reason why that's rare and not many people work on dinosaurs?
1: Well... I suppose that like with anything in science it's a matter of where funding is allocated where we're able to build research groups where Mm. the jobs pop up and so that kind of depends on where the the departments that are interested in kind of having this sort of paleo center centric research uh, research focus Mm. Um, so in general yeah there's not a lot of jobs in paleontology uh, but I would I'm there have been more and more popping up mm. over over the last few years, and I think as more pop up, more positions get created, more students um, get kind of uh, put through. Mm. Uh, uh, put through. Then that hopefully more universities kind of uh, kind of catch on that they should all hire paleontologists, <laughs> at least a few. Well, I mean, if I was going to guess, I would have said that
0: your dinosaurs would be where the opportunities are because you know
1: people want to work with them and they're easy to sell yeah so dinosaurs are you know are really cool in the sense that because the sort of everybody can relate to them in the sense that they've everybody was a child at some point and everybody Mm. thought that dinosaurs were interesting and cool and sort of a wow factor um they do serve a sort of a educational purpose because mm-hmm. uh, we can use dinosaurs as sort of a just a, a model or as like a gateway to learning about evolutionary biology, learning about the evolution of the earth, uh, mm-hmm. earth history and and all these things that uh, with other um systems which are equally as interesting because mm-hmm. uh, the sort of the the breadth of diversity that we have uh, in on the earth and the past is amazing and they're they 're all interesting in their own right dinosaurs because of their size because they're they kind of captured uh, a lot of our imaginations. Have are a good vector for sort of teaching stuff that would be perhaps not as accessible mm-hmm. um, with uh, with other organisms.
0: And, and particularly with your stuff, you work on on the big ones.
1: Yeah. So we so my my research interest has has sort of lied on not only the sort of exploratory and discovery. Component of paleontology, but then taking it to what paleontology has to offer to our understanding of evolutionary biology and the history of life Mm -hmm. And so I like to go out and take lots of measurements of things Mm -hmm. um, and then sort of try to uh, analyze them um, uh, To see what it say what it says about evolution
0: In terms of how particular groups have changed
1: over time, yeah, how they've changed, uh, sort of the rates at which they've changed, Mm -hmm. if they've changed quickly or slowly, um, if we can, if how, if these particular patterns tell us anything about extinction, Mm -hmm. uh, why certain morphologies or certain um, aspects of these animals uh, preferentially went extinct over others. Mm I'm sort of trying to get at a, at a root of understanding why, how and why life has changed mm-hmm. over time.
0: Okay, so by taking these measurements. You can sort of start to infer, all right, this is the sort of
1: yeah. behavior or lifestyle. Yeah, d- paleontology is a very uh, kind of a pattern-based science in mm-hmm. which we can go out and measure and reconstruct things. The, the The processes, the mechanisms behind them are always quite difficult to interpret. Um, but that's the challenge. And mm-hmm. That's sort of what... what um, my research tries to. So, address. in what way
0: is it difficult in terms of getting
1: from a measurement of a bone to. Yeah, well, knowing what, it means, what that means, yeah. Knowing what it means is a, is a difficult uh, step because we are, because it, it's historical. It's something mm. that has happened, it's not something that necessarily is happening. Mm. And so you were left with a lot of uncertainty.
0: Yeah. So, I know you're working on stuff where you are trying to calculate the size of dinosaurs. Yeah. Is this from you know, taking a measurement of a bone and just adding 20 and
1: going, yep, that's it? <laughs> almost, almost. <laughs> so I guess the, the study of sort of trying to get body, mass, uh, body masses and sizes of dinosaurs goes back over 100 years. Mm-hmm. People basically trying to come up with ways to, understand, to know how big these animals actually yep. were. Uh, but there was a really neat little paper back in the 80s that went out and tried to do some comparisons in living animals and taking limb bone measurements of mm-hmm. living animals and correlating that with the masses of those animals since, yeah, we, right. since we do have body mass knowledge of living animals.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and then created a uh, scaling equation to, to, to use, and then applied it to, to estimate body masses mm-hmm. of dinosaurs. Uh, that was a big focus of my PhD because I went out and tried to test this equation uh, a lot more systemically. So collected a lot of data from a lot of different types of animals, different sizes of animals, of living animals, Mm -hmm. reptiles and mammals, and did a bunch of comparisons uh, to see if we can find different scaling patterns in different groups. And what I found is that that equation that they presented in the 80s was actually quite good. Uh, (laughs) There wasn't a lot of differences between different groups of animals, even mammals and reptiles who hold their limbs in very different Positions mm. showed very similar patterns, and this is specifically related to the circumference of mm. the humerus, so that's the upper arm bone, and the femur, um, so the, uh, the the thigh bone. Mm. And it looks like those measurements seem to be quite uh, correlated and associated with mass, mm-hmm. rather than other aspects of these animals' biologies. So is that why this early?
0: equation works well because it's essentially a physics problem if you want to hold up
1: this much weight you need this much stuff yep i think that's basically what it comes down to the the biomechanical details of how exactly these correlations what what these correlations mean are still something that needs to be uh, examined Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, i know that i've puzzled a lot of my colleagues by presenting these these results (laughs) because because they're 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 now questioning like well how does this actually work like, yeah. well, how is it that these animals that, you know, the, the forces that go through the limbs of, the, of, say, mammals and reptiles is very different? Mm. So why is it that they follow the same, uh, the same relationship? And so that's more questions. As science goes, you know, you answer one question and then there's more questions that arise.
0: Yeah. And so the, the bit that always interests me about this stuff is
1: I understand
0: that you can use these sort of equations and uh, methods of extrapolation to figure out sizes and masses of things. How do you then go that extra step forward and figure out uh, or reconstruct what these things look like in more finer details, you know? Oh, that's How do you know? You know, you see these pictures where they have really elaborate, I don't know, lips or something. (laughs) How do you know Uh, those bits?
1: Well, I think think it was... uh... Uh, Gould called it uh, methodological uniformitarianism. We okay. base it on what we look at, what we can see today. Yeah. All so, right. So what we, what we see today uh, gives us sort of a ground, uh, uh, sort of like a, the, the baseline. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, we can then say, okay, well, we have some, stru- some structures. We have osteological or bone correlates mm-hmm. that would suggest that maybe this thing had lips or maybe this thing mm-hmm. had cheeks. Maybe this thing had a crest. Maybe this thing had these kind of um, uh, anatomical fe- features. Mm-hmm. So it's still very much grounded in what we see today yeah. um, and then apply it to the, foss- the fossil record.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess a good example of that is something like, let's say, woolly mammoths, mm-hmm. where if we've got a skull, it looks a hell of a lot like an elephant yeah. skull. And yep. Here's all these attachment points where there should be muscles for exactly, a chunky yeah. looking thing.
1: Yep. We can figure that much out. You can figure that much out. And I mean... This is where the discovery part of paleontology is so critical is because as we find more specimens, we can refine those hypotheses. And so mm-hmm. someone reconstructs this animal looking like this, and then there's another specimen that comes up that sh- kind of sheds light on that and either confirms that that reconstruction was okay, mm-hmm. or questions it. You're like, "Ah, well, actually, this doesn't conform with what this person had said." it would actually suggest that the, that the animal looked more like this. So it's not just taking artistic license. No. And... <laughs> no, I mean, there is always, there's always, paleo artists will always have fun with, <laughs> with, with, that, with that kind of stuff, and I think they should. Yeah. Um, the, the uncertainty associated with these reconstructions allows for some fun. Mm. Um, but in, in most cases, we, are, we try to ground truth it with something that we can say empirically. These are, this, these are the data we have, this is what we can say for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, you mentioned paleo artists. It's an, I'm very interested in that because it's a neat area where science and art really work side by side almost. Because whenever you see mm-hmm. a description of a new dinosaur yep. or some sort of revision, the, the big papers tend to come with a really nice reconstruction yep. of things. Is that the work of a scientist or an artist or
1: both? yeah yeah so it's become quite common now as you as you mentioned for these for these papers to come up with reconstructions and in all cases the scientists have hired the artists mm-hmm. to reconstruct something for them mm-hmm. and the artists will take their they'll go off they'll do they will take some liberties and then they'll send drafts over to uh, to, to us mm-hmm. We we'll look at them revise them say okay well this this makes sense actually this doesn't make sense with this new paper that just came out mm-hmm. Can you change it to look more like this? Mm-hmm. And then the art, the art, the artist will go off and do that. And then be a, a bit of a back and forth.
0: And that's something you've you've had to do before? Uh, a little bit. Yeah.
1: yeah. I've, I've seen it in action.
0: Okay. <laughs> you never take it upon yourself to, to draw your little critters?
1: Uh, I don't have enough money to pay for <laughs> these artists. <laughs> <laughs> they're all, they're all very good and they're all worth uh, every penny, but I don't always have that kind of money to, to, pay them so, so in the few papers that ha- that i've been on i've been fortunate to work with other people that have some money <laughs> <laughs> well i mean it's interesting to hear because
0: uh it, it's easy to assume that scientific illustration would be a bit of a
1: dying art form um i don't know i'd, I'd say that there's just a lot of people doing it mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of people perhaps underpaid to do it as well <laughs> and that it's a uh, um like we were, like this whole like, premise, you know, we're trying to communicate science, these reconstructions do go a long way in sort of making it visually appealing and making people think a little bit about, mm. um, uh, you can almost sometimes even think of these images as like a, a mini graphic abstract of the study mm. because they'll often bring in aspects of the, 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 the research of that paper to show certain aspects of the biology of these animals mm. that the paper is about. And it's now graphically shown in these reconstructions. Mm. I mean,
0: we've got, there's an in-situ science video on our YouTube channel where we talked to a scientific illustrator huh? who uh, got chatting to her and she was essentially, I mean, she was a PhD student as well and started doing this on the side. And it was sort of getting to a point where she's getting a hell of a lot of work doing illustrations because she's obviously she's very good. good at what <laughs> yeah. she does. Yep. But then also there's the market out there and sort yep. of... You're distracting her from
1: her research level. little bit, so uh, At some know. point, you know, you have to decide, probably decide which one you want to do more. <laughs> um, mm. But no, I think they're, they're 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 an essential part of what of what we do.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, you mentioned before about the the public fascination with dinosaurs and and. You know, there's that stereotype of the little kid that's obsessed with dinosaurs and memorizes all their names and yep. has all the toys. That's me. That was going to be my next question. <laughs> was that you as a kid? Uh, yeah, yep. I will admit that that was me. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, growing up, I mean, we we're probably similar ages. We we're a perfect age for things like Jurassic Park and mm-hmm. even Land Before Time and all that sort of stuff.
1: I, I thought dinosaurs were cool before Jurassic
0: Park. <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> And, but do you actually think that played an, a role in... Absolutely. Do you... Are you just then living the dream? Is this a... Definitely. You have to pinch yourself every day when you realize that
1: yep. you, you've made a career out of your childhood fascination? Absolutely. No, it's, it's absolutely true. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of fun. I, I can't, uh, I can't uh, negate that. I would strongly encourage anybody who really loves this kind of stuff to, to persevere. And I mean, it wasn't something that... I mean, I was obviously interested in it as a kid, as most kids are. Mm. And I, of course, I went through a phase where it wasn't as big of a, of a, uh, of a presence in, in my life. I didn't care about it that much. I still found it interesting. I always was kind of fascinated by biology. Mm. And then when I got into a university, the program kind of, I was like, okay, well, I didn't really know, I, I like biology, I like geology, so I kind of went into a biology-geology
2: mm.
1: program, and then a paleo program popped up. All right. And so I kind of decided, yeah. Why not? I liked, I liked it before, mm-hmm. let's, continu- let's continue this.
0: And then the opportunity to do dinosaur stuff, was that a, an active choice to go for these things? Or did yeah. the opportunities fall in your lap? Yeah,
1: as, as the, my undergrad sort of went through, uh, one of the, the, the professors uh, there, uh, Dr. R- Robert Holmes, mm-hmm. he was um, uh, teaching at, the, at, the, at my university back in Canada. And you know, I talked talk to him, I liked what he was doing and he proposed a, a dinosaur project and that was my first paper Out mm-hmm. uh, of out of my out of my, uh, my undergrad and then from there I just kind of continued on and i've been very lucky to meet people who liked who liked me liked what i was doing and Kind of wanted to help me out as well. Mm-hmm. And so they you know, I got masters and phd positions without too much um, hassle uh, and so I probably just kind of was lucky in terms of where I slotted in. Uh, I know that it's a lot harder nowadays because there's a lot more students nowadays. Than... <laughs> and obviously, you're a hard worker and yeah, oh, yeah, you know yeah, what of course. you're doing all that sort of stuff. Uh, I would say that, you know, we're all hard workers. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> Luck has a lot to do with it, unfortunately.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, you're, you've sort of been all over the place with this career path. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that a. So, so homes, home's up in Canada, right? So he's who I did my undergrad okay. thesis with.
1: And then from there, you ended up... That was in, So that was in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. Uh, then from there, I moved to Toronto, mm-hmm. where I did both my master's and my PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I moved... After my PhD, I moved to Sweden, mm-hmm. where I did a postdoc and then a research position for four years. Mm-hmm. And now I'm here. Okay,
0: and amongst there, I'm sure there've been tons of actual field trips to.
1: Oh yeah. Goodness knows where to find fossils and things. Well, that's the the fun part of paleontology is actually <laughs> going into the field, right? But yeah. it is a lot more hard work than perhaps five-year-old me thought at the time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what did you think?
1: Oh, <laughs> well, you know, everybody has this sort kind of idealistic view of what kind of romantic view of what digging for dinosaurs is like. Yeah. It's a lot of a lot more hard work than that, and. Generally, you, you find stuff, but what you find is generally not that exciting. And then yeah. it takes a lot more work to really get to the point where you find something really exciting.
0: So my realization was that I was amazed at how much being a, a sort of tropical entomologist involves finding a Starbucks to use their Wi-Fi or, <laughs> or haggling <laughs> with taxi drivers in Thailand or something, right. <laughs> you know. You guess, yeah. You have those romantic images of you know, spending months out in the field with a butterfly net and a right, ski yep. net, and and it's a lot more. I don't want to say mundane, but uh, it's,
1: it's a different world we live in. I guess. It is, and it is definitely. I mean, some of the places where we go, it's they're harsh environmental mm. environments to be in. Um, there's a reason why there's you know a lot of rock exposure, for instance, in like the badlands or the desert, mm. um, and those are generally good places to go and find. Mm-hmm. Uh, find find fossils, but those are also places that are hard to get to, mm-hmm. uh, and are can be really really hot. <laughs> and uh, we've had in some of the field areas in southern Alberta in Canada, where we did, where I, I joined my PhD supervisor, uh, Dr. David Evans, on several different uh, excursions. Temperatures in the quarry could reach over fifty degrees Celsius. Wow, and so that's really hot. Yeah, <laughs> so you have to be. Are ready for that kind of stuff, and mm. uh, it's you know, you have to make sure you're drinking lots of water and eating properly and making sure that you're okay physically because mm. if not, it's easy for it to get away from you, and all yeah. of a sudden, you know, you have heat stroke.
0: And how much time would you spend out in the
1: field just throughout a year? for a year. I mean, this is going to vary from paleontologist to paleontologist. Mm-hmm. I am probably not your typical field paleontologist mm-hmm. that will spend you know months on end in the field mm-hmm. um, I, I like to do you know about a month a year mm-hmm. uh, in the fields, yeah. uh, maybe a little bit more if i 'm going to different places around the world, yeah. uh, but we tend to do about i 'd say anywhere from two to four weeks in Alberta every year
0: yeah and I guess your the sort of work you 're doing is inferring stuff from Things that maybe other people have, have discovered mm-hmm. or find. Are there paleontologists that essentially do all the discovery and the unearthing? Or is, I mean, how does that work?
1: Uh, yeah, there are some who do a lot more field work. Yeah. Or at least they spend a lot of their time doing field work. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always amazed at, at, at those colleagues of mine. <laughs> they, they clearly love it, and that's, yeah. and that's great. But at some level, sometimes I do kind of want to come back to my air conditioning. and internet. (laughs) I am a millennial after all. (laughs) And so you've
0: come now to the extreme locale of of Armadale, which, as we said, has a great little hub of paleontologists, but Mm -hmm. Armadale itself isn't
1: necessarily a good place for fossils, right? Well, Armadale (laughs) itself, you know what, I actually don't know enough yet about the geology around (laughs) Armadale to say for sure if it's good or bad for fossils. Mm -hmm. Uh, The dinosaurs... In the area, probably have to go to say something like Lightning Ridge, mm-hmm. um, but the the rock type in this area of Australia should provo- actually generate more. Okay. You'd think. Yeah. Um, and so uh, this is something that you know myself and uh, Phil Bell here at UNE have been discussing. Mm-hmm. You know the potential of doing some fieldwork in in the area. Maybe you know, only within. 100, 200 kilometers from here. So, so this is something you can like prospect
0: yeah. for, the way you'd prospect
1: for oil or gas or something if you know the geology. If you know the geology, uh, you can basically go to the places mm-hmm. and you should be able to find. But of course, you do, you're depending on a few different things. So yeah. you, so it's not just knowing where the rocks of the right age are. Mm-hmm. You also need that the rocks be exposed because mm-hmm. if they're you know meters underground, they're no good to you. Hmm. They might as well be not, not be there <laughs> because we're just never gonna have access to them. Yeah. So you kind of, you're, you're, we're, we're, we're reliant on where rocks are exposed. Mm-hmm. And so depending on, that's why, for instance, we go to places like the Badlands and the Gobi Desert because there's not a lot of vegetation. Things so, are exposed and easy to
0: see. So that might be a, a bit of an eye-opener for, well, at least for me, the thought that
1: paleontologists don't really dig for right things (laughs) yeah no we don't it's quite rare for us to dig for things we generally walk for things (laughs) and then you go to where the rocks are exposed Mm -hmm. and uh, and then you walk try to find things that are eroding out of the hill Mm -hmm. and then when you find something that's when you dig Mm -hmm. Um, so that you're not digging aimlessly and is that purely why or would digging be potentially harmful and all that stuff um no it would just be kind of aimless (laughs) there's no you you're digging for no reason it's a lot of work to dig yeah and it doesn't actually if you don't know that there is something there then you're digging for nothing.
0: You can't just do what they did in Jurassic Park and shoot a little uh, sonic boom down into the ground. I have no idea if that is even a real thing. <laughs> really? <laughs> I've never, I've never even looked into it.
1: So <laughs> I don't even know if that is true.
0: Hey, okay, it looked very, it. it looked real. It was sort of just. A... It's true. It
1: did look. But I, I imagine that if it was real, then more of us would know about it.
0: Yeah, surely by been... no, if it existed, it would be an yeah. app on your phone, and you.
1: I mean, one of the that. issues, of course, is that depending on how. I don't, I can't remember, I think it was like an x-ray, I don't remember what the technology was that they were doing. But it's not always yeah. evident, um, some of these, a lot of these imaging techniques require there to be a stark difference in, say, something like the density or chemical mm. makeup between different things you're looking at. But a lot of these bones, you know, they're fossilized, they're part they're of the part. rock. Yeah. And so I don't know how good or accurate those techniques would be when you're trying to visualize something like that in the rock. Mm. Um, but there's also vari- there's obviously variation because you know Phil Bell here does uh, scanning of blocks and then can take out bones vi- mm-hmm. virtually and then even print them out in three D and so the ro- the bones are still in the rock mm-hmm. but he can actually still hold them as a three as a three dimensional reconstruction which is kind of cool.
0: <laughs> and so when you're going out discovering things, have you been in the position where you're? Uh, able to describe something new or revise something? We're in the midst of describing something. Oh, can, can we get a, a sneak preview? or what's?
1: Uh, yeah, so this, <laughs> absolutely, no, this summer uh, was our first major discovery. So myself, Phil Bell, and some colleagues back in Canada, we, ha- we run what's called the uh, Boreal Alberta Dinosaur Project, or BADP. <laughs> and uh, we've been sort of exploring areas of Alberta, so for anybody who doesn't know, Alberta has probably one of the richest deposits of dinosaur fossils in the world mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of what we know about especially dinosaurs just before the extinction comes from uh, Alberta. Okay. If we're going back over a hundred years of research in, the, in, in that area. But the focus has been on particular formations within Alberta that have provided a lot of um, a lot of fossils, and these are the ones where the Badlands are well exposed. Mm-hmm. Where we do work uh, in Bad P, it's up in northern, more northwestern Alberta.
0: Sorry, can I quickly ask Badlands, is that because it's part of the Bad Project?
1: No, no, Badlands is because okay. it's, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> it, they, things were called Badlands because they weren't particularly good for growing okay. <laughs> vegetation or having cows or, they, yeah. so people call them the Badlands. Yeah. Right. Generally they occur, in say something, in the um, Midwestern part of uh, Canada and, and the U.S. All right. So, you know, kind of your typical farmlands where you'd have, you know, people to grow wheat and grow all these vegetation, but then all of a sudden you'd have a rift where a river was going through and you'd have a bunch of desert-like expo- yeah. exposure, which is terrible for for farming and, agric- and agriculture, yeah. but really good for finding fossils. Okay. <laughs> all
0: right. So, you're in the Badlands and you're doing Bad pee. So, Badlands, so where we
1: are in Bad P, though, there are no Badlands. Okay. <laughs> And just to confuse everybody, <laughs> there are no Badlands. Okay. But anyways, we, it's a part of uh, the, the rock record of Alberta that has been poorly explored. Mm-hmm. And so we've, been, we've taken it upon ourselves to, to you know, go out and explore these, uh, these areas in a bit more detail. And we've been doing it now for about four years. And we've found lots of stuff. Mm-hmm. But our first really cool discovery was the skull of a duckbill dinosaur. Okay. Uh, and so this is the first complete skull of this uh, this this type of animal from this area all right so it's being currently prepared right now back in Canada Mm -hmm. and so hopefully that will be described and and either named as something new if it is new or identified as something that already exists so are are you a uh, are you a lumper or a splitter oh I am definitely a lumper okay (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so we should explain what that means to people listening. <laughs> That's probably a good idea. So th- this happens a lot in, in paleontology, but I'm guessing it happens a- as well in oh, in, yeah. your, in your field. Definitely. <laughs> so when people deal with naming species, mm-hmm. um, there are some who like to see a lot of variation and interpret that variation, the differences in what they see as differences in different species. Mm-hmm and there are others who see this variation as being more of a general distribution of variation within single or a few different species a few mm. species rather than a lot of species so people who see lots of diversity versus people who see few a, a, a lot of variation but less diversity yeah so um, if you find a whole bunch of dinosaur skulls that
0: look similar but are different sizes a splitter might go, these are all different species of different
1: sizes. Yeah, so I'd be more likely to say this is probably something, that's a species that we know, and it's just a different size of the animal. And in yeah. fact, I like that interpretation better because I feel like if we have, in this particular case, if this will be the case because this is a small animal. Mm. Um, and I feel that you know if we have data to show that, that, that show us how these animals grew mm-hmm. or how they um. That, I feel like that's actually more valuable than if you have just an, a, yet another species of something. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of growth information is is telling you something about the biology of these animals.
0: I mean, the, the growth one's almost an easy one because if you have lots of specimens, yep. then it's, presumably you can look at a sort of a spectrum yep. or a, a trend there. How would you then deal with things like uh sexual dimorphism oh. or things like that
1: I... very difficult <laughs> it's very difficult if not i would dare 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 say impossible okay so if you've got a
0: one species where the male and the female looked very different which is quite yeah. common mm-hmm.
1: there's no way of knowing well first anyway. it would be very difficult to actually know if it's a male or a female yeah which one is which yeah uh, but second of all, it's, it's uh, there was a, a colleague of, of mine, um, uh, Dr. Jordan Mallon, back in Canada, who recently published a, a fun paper that tried to look at how we how we can go about quantifying differences uh, s- uh, sexual di- dimorphism, mm-hmm. or at least just dimorphism in general. Mm-hmm. And what he found is that even when we have in living animals, where we know that there are males and females. Mm-hmm. If, you were, and if you were to look at, say, a distribution, you would not be able from the distribution to say that there are males and females. Yeah. So th- <laughs> That's the tricky part, <laughs> is that we know, so if you did it, so because you know that this is a male, you know this is a female, you do a t-test, it gives you significant difference that, that, that they are significantly different. Yeah. But if you didn't know which one was male and female, just and you just lump them, them, them in together into one one kind of continuum, yeah. the distribution would not tell you that you would have you had males and females.
0: And, and it's particularly interesting. I mean, I know of lots of cases in herpetology where sort of distinguishing male and female is pretty difficult unless you've been in the field for a long time. And you know, there'd be some old salt that just go, yeah, it's a male, yeah, it's a female. Right. Yep. Just by the vibe of the thing. Mm-hmm.
1: But then if you actually go and measure it... Yep. It's really hard to tell. It's a very hard one to tell, and there is an ongoing debate in in in, especially in dinosaur paleontology about Mm. whether this is whether the differences that we see in, uh, say, for instance, cranial ornamentation Mm. in different groups of dinosaurs, if this is a uh, this reflects some sort of dimorphism, or if this is these are just differences between species Mm. and just a general difference as opposed to them being driven by sexual selection or something like that.
0: And this is a problem because. As you said, people are really passionate about dinosaurs. Mm. It can lead to situations where their favorite dinosaur stops it ever
1: having existed. It's true. Yep. Right? <laughs> yep. It, it, and that that has happened. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, in one of my papers back during my PhD, I sank uh, a, a taxon called Anatotitan which a cool name. You sink it, as in? As in, it's no more. Okay. Ac- according to me, it's no more. Okay. It's basically just part of the variation that you see in another taxon called the Demontosaurus. Okay. And so I did a a big revision using a lot of different quantitative methods to try to review these species. And where, where there was once five species, I only see two species. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And it seems to have been, at least so far, the, no no one's, no one's written a rebuttal so far. So. <laughs> would Would it be different if it was... Like uh, a Tyrannosaurus, something really oh, f- popular. Yeah, absolutely. So there is this taxon called Nanotyrannus, okay. which has been floating around for quite a while now. Mm-hmm. And some people, you know, will fight the existence of Nanotyrannus to the end, and other people think that Nanotyrannus is just a juvenile Tyrannosaurus. Okay, so because I remember
0: growing up and finding out that it was one of the famous. It's like Brachiosaurus never existed. It's like... The Brontosaurus. Brontosaurus never but existed. But it's back.
1: Okay. <laughs> Go on. What's the story? <laughs> oh, the, the the details of the... It's actually a fun... There's a, there, there is a, a fun history to all this. And basically there were specimens that were, were lost and um, things that were misinterpreted. But anyways, there are the, a recent big phylogeny done on, uh, on sauropods would reveal that the existence of Brontosaurus, that there is this genus is, is probably legit. Okay. Not every single specimen that's been attributed to the brontosaurus in the past is necessarily part of that. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of variation, um, but uh, there is, it is back. Okay, so, and it was originally removed because they
0: thought it was just? It was just variation within uh, the apatosaurus. Okay, got
1: it. And yep. Diplodocus is still around, right? Diplodocus for sure, yeah. All right, good. Good. These I'll are like all this. part of this that the the, the one dip, diplodocoidia or diplodocidae or anything. I'm not a pot expert so <laughs> <laughs> well as
0: Phil Bell was on this podcast a little while ago and I, I confessed to him that I am a a duck billed dinosaur fan since I was a little kid for some reason they're just my my favorite well,
1: then Phil and I both like you <laughs>
0: good <laughs> and I, well I think it came from. Yeah. Well, I don't want to say science fiction, but, you know, popular dinosaur stuff. I mm-hmm. think I was a a ducky fan from Land Before Time. Ah, oh, ducky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, and, and so these are... I mean, I I've also learned from Phil I was pronouncing it wrong, Parasaurolophus? Correct. All right. And so that... They're in the...
1: Uh, wait, hadrosaur is a group, or hadrosaurs are within a group of... So, the family is called the Hadrosauridae. Okay. And Parasaurolophus is one of them. It has a big, long, tubular crest. Okay, so you pronounce it like I do.
0: But but you can Phil say, says Parasaurolophus. Yeah. Phil is, <laughs> Phil is silly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Good. All right. It's, it's one of those things like you see all these scientific words written all the time and you never There is heard probably them a said.
1: correct Latin pronunciation, <laughs> but. English is not going to do it. <laughs> so English <laughs> bastardizes all, all these things all the time. So I'm sure the way I'm saying it is just, and the way Phil says it's just differences in accents. Right. And just emphasizing. And probably I would say that Phil's maybe closer to the the better one. Because more <laughs> the more, it's... it's the maybe, more senior you are? <laughs> no, I don't think about that. <laughs> I think more in terms of uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, American accent often bastardizes things more okay. than the uh, and by sp- American. I'm, I'm also lumping the Canadian one into there. Okay. <laughs> right, yeah. North, North America. North American that. <laughs> uh, English tends to um, modify the pronunciation of words more, I find. Um, and so on, you know, if you're in a position
0: where you think you can sink a, a dinosaur, that's got to be uh, really politically dangerous if, say, the person that Described that originally, you know, still alive, or
1: it can be <laughs> depends on how, <laughs> how you know, excited they were about that particular naming. Okay. <laughs> All right, so uh, you would probably just bring them up and say, "Hey, what do you think of this?" Or just publish the paper, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Deal with it later. <laughs> Deal with it later. Yeah. No, and, I think I think in general, I haven't had any any particular backlash from the taxa that I have. Uh, sunk and in fact uh, on a paper that we, we sunk another taxon that Jack Horner had named mm. and Jack Horner even actually thanked us for sinking his taxon because oh. I guess he agreed. So
0: that, that's uh, for people listening Jack Horner is like a paleo name drop. It is yes it is,
1: <laughs> you know one of the consultants for Jurassic Park. Yes uh, but he's big, a big
0: name invert paleo. He kind of made a name originally for being a lumper, right? Or am I thinking
1: of someone else? Yeah, well, he has been uh, very avid in terms, of, you know, really understanding the growth of dinosaurs mm. and understanding their, their biology when when it comes to interpreting their variation. So not mm. just seeing variation as taxonomic all the time, but actually taxonomic meaning as different species, mm. but meaning the, but the variation could mean other things. Yeah, um, and he's been a big name in that.
0: And, and Jack Horner, he's the one, though, that's uh, reverse engineering chicken teeth, right? Or, or what yeah, or the chickenosaurus. <laughs> yep, yep, he's supposedly trying to do that. Okay, <laughs> which I know very little about, so I shouldn't be talking about, but essentially they're getting chickens yep. and genetically. Ch- chicken embryos. Switching on or off genes yep. so that they express yep. their old yep. ancient dinosaur
1: characteristics. Well, one of the uh, kind of. If you look at the growth of different. Uh, animals. This is not true for everything, but in general, um, the growth of animals will follow some sort of uh, also phylogenetic history. Mm-hmm. So we will, mean, for instance, when we look at our embryos, there's a, there's a period of time, we don't have gills per se, but we have the the same structures that would form gills that then in us form something else. Mm-hmm. So the idea would be that we can, um, I'm also not an expert in this kind of stuff, but that <laughs> they, they can switch these kind of expressions on and off Mm. throughout the ontogenic history the uh, of these animals as these animals grow and then maybe make an animal that has certain aspect it's still a chicken <laughs> but it has certain physical attributes that are more akin to a dinosaur than to or to their ancestors than, mm. it, than a, the chicken itself so yeah. if, have a tail for instance and yeah have claws on the wings and yes you can have teeth i guess if you want <laughs> that
0: <laughs> yeah but yeah, I, I read one or two articles about it and it sounded cool, but yeah, we should talk about it if we...
1: Yeah, it's not, know, definitely it's not my <laughs> area of expertise.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so have you have had a chance to get out into the field since you've been in Australia?
1: Uh, Phil and I... Well, we did a, an intensive teaching school, uh, field school here mm-hmm. uh, last week, yeah. and we went out to uh, the Nimboida River, yeah. which is the rocks of the right age, the Jurassic Age. Mm-hmm. Um, no bones, but uh, those petrified trees. Good. That's so, important. And... Uh, Some of them are actually quite cool and big. Mm -hmm. So uh, a little bit of field work, but hopefully, you know, do a little bit more in the future. Mm -hmm. And so uh,
0: just on this, the moving about that science entails, you've sort of gone from north america over to sweden and now down here mm-hmm. and you've sort of taken your family along i have on the ride how yeah. have they enjoyed the life of a
1: scientist if if they don't like it they're being very good at <laughs> <and quiet laughs> being quiet about it because they seem to be having a lot of a lot of fun
0: right, and so you've been to australia or armadale nope. before you came here
1: nope all right. No, we hadn't been to Sweden either. We just okay. <laughs> we just, just jump two feet in, right? <laughs> yes, let's just do this.
0: <laughs> and so, I mean, this is a question I seem to ask a lot on this podcast. Is that aspect of science, are you in the camp of it being a burden or it being a fun adventure? Oh, it's definitely a
1: fun adventure. Yeah. Yeah. No. It's, yeah, I mean, it's, you. you have to sometimes not think too far into the future. Yeah. Because it's difficult to sometimes make plans mm. uh, too far in advance, um, especially you know if, when one when goes through the grad school and postdoc and different positions looking for that kind of permanent job. Mm. So, but if you're able to not kind of obsess about the uncertainties of the future, mm. you can definitely enjoy a lot of what the present has to hold because it's, it is a lot of fun.
0: Is, is your position here permanent, can I ask? No. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Maybe, maybe one day. Well, I mean, it's getting to the stage where it's as, as permanent as you can
1: hope for, right? It's Pretty much. Yep. Multiple years. Multiple years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Give me a little bit of you know, uh, I I would rather, of course, be doing research than applying for jobs. So having you know a, a multi-year position allows gives you that freedom to, to at least you know focus on all the things that you like to do mm. rather than than other things that you have to do.
0: Yeah, I think it. it Helps a lot having a family that you know, keeps their mouths shut or whatever way you. Yeah, that's it. right. Yeah, no, they're <laughs> extremely supportive. Extremely, is the word I'm looking for. Ex- extremely <laughs> supportive, and my kids are my
1: kids are, are are still young, so they they can move around quite easily. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they've been both they've been amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I could have not done this without my wife. That's for sure. So she's been. <laughs> She's been stellar through all, throughout all this.
0: And so, do they? Uh, I'm sh- assuming they would become wicked little field assistants and stuff when they hit the right age. That's that's the
1: goal. That's the plan. <laughs> yeah, that is that is the goal. <laughs> little pack mules. <laughs> <laughs> How old are they now? Five and two. Yeah, five year old would be big enough. To... He's he's getting there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's and he, he's asked about.
0: You know, joining me in the field at some point. Yeah, and are you just buying the dinosaur toys and bed sheets and
1: stuff together? Yeah, he's really into sharks, though.
0: All right. Yeah. Well, that's good because you do shark stuff. I do do some All shark right. stuff as well. Yeah. All right. Uh, is, are we talking extinct sharks or?
1: Yeah. Oh, I guess, well, I guess I, I use the living sharks as sort of as a way of interpreting the extinct ones. Okay. And
0: in similar sorts of questions, figure out how big they were and what they looked like. Yeah. Ex- sort of yep.
1: Extinction patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, radiation patterns. Um, We're we're doing a study right now that's uh, looking at how sharks uh, fared through the Cretaceous, the end Cretaceous extinction. Mm -hmm. So when you know all the the big dinosaurs went extinct, um, a lot of other things also went extinct, Mm -hmm. Uh, and sharks seemingly kind of breezed through the the extinction event. Mm -hmm.
2: um,
1: But there's definitely a lot of interesting kind of detailed patterns of how that extinction went about because sharks were also affected by it. Mm -hmm. Uh, but they, not all sharks, and so they did survive, mm-hmm. uh, but there are definitely probably some um, some aspects of shark diversity that changed quite a bit um, and is it a as similar, a result of that extinction.
0: Is it, I mean, am I right in assuming that a similar pattern in this
1: big extinction event was big things went, little things hung around? Uh, we haven't looked too much about the size of sharks across the extinction yet. Okay. Um, that hypothesis is out there, mm-hmm. or at least that, that pattern has been recovered. Yeah. Um, we've been looking at sort of tooth morphology mm-hmm. and sort of the shapes of teeth across the extinction and sort of interpreting it from a dietary perspective, okay. uh, how uh, if there were shifts in what these things were eating. Um, because uh, because so many things went extinct, you think that major food groups also, major food groups went extinct, mm-hmm. and this would have, have an effect on surviving uh, groups would have been affected by this sort of lack of food.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so would we expect, say, something like, more generalist feeders would do better than a specialist feeder, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's generally the,
1: thats what the sort of. What we're trying to kind of test and and, and look at, mm-hmm. um, but that is basically the ongoing hypothesis, and it's probably a pretty good uh, baseline start to say that that's. A, a, it's an a, assumption. That, a, a, yeah. An assumption to make when, yeah, when it comes yeah. to to extinction events. Yeah.
0: So, All right. Yeah, well, I should probably like to get back to it. And okay, thank you. Keep busy. <laughs> and if people want to find out more, you have a website?
1: Uh, yeah, so they can, come, they can visit me at uh, nicolascampione.weebly.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, or well, I guess that's probably the best way to, <laughs> to, to, to find out more information. With me. Right. Or they're, 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 people can easily email me as well. Yeah, uh, are you a social media Ah, uh, uh, yes, scientist? I'm at, uh, at paleonic. At paleonic. And, which is not paleo diet. <laughs> do you, well, I never do have paleo diet followers <laughs> <laughs> but yeah you can follow me at that I don't tweet a lot but I like to kind of retweet stuff that I see that kind of comes out especially when it pertains to vertebrate um, paleontology and evolution so I
0: would just start trolling paleo diet people if I had that problem <laughs> 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 I think mean, mean, you I should think about it <laughs> Maybe I thought about it <laughs> Alright, well thanks again for coming on the podcast Thank you very much for having me And thank you guys for listening We're on Twitter at InSituScience so you can go to InSituScience.com We're on Facebook and Instagram now We're on YouTube and all of that stuff Thanks again for listening And we'll see you next time